giving you glory for what you have done, the plan that you set in motion eons ago and brought to fruition 2,000 years ago and laid it on our hearts this day. This is why we give you honor and glory because we understand that we can be saved from this world, that everything can be set right. We ask as we look at this, as we remember what Jesus went through, your son, that we would be able to hold him in high esteem for he is our Messiah. He is the Christ. He is our Savior. So Lord, fill us with joy and your spirit. And for those who are downtrodden, who are hurting, the people that we know, I pray that you would lift them up, encourage them. And if we can have a word of encouragement, may you provide that for us. In Jesus' name, amen. So Mark chapter 16, beginning in verse 1. This is after the crucifixion. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might go and anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb. And they asked each other, who will roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they lay him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter. He is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. When Jesus rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had driven seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him and who were mourning and weeping. When they heard that Jesus was alive and that she had seen him, they did not believe it. Afterwards, Jesus appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking in the country. These returned and reported it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. Later, Jesus appeared to the eleven as they were eating. He rebuked them for their lack of faith and their stubborn refusal to believe those who had seen him after he had risen. He said to them, go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe in my name. They will drive out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up snakes with their hands and they will drink deadly poison. It will not hurt them at all. They will place their hands on the sick people and they will get well. After the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven and he sat at the right hand of God. Then the disciples went out and preached everywhere and the Lord worked with them and confirmed his word by the signs that accompanied it. So what is this event of the resurrection? It's God demonstrating that death could not hold Jesus in its grip because Jesus was sinless. He had no sin. 
And we know that the wages of sin is death. So anybody who commits a sin is destined to die a physical death and after that to be judged and die a spiritual death afterwards. Romans 3.23 tells us that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So none of us will be able to escape this idea of death, except for two people have. In the Old Testament, we know that Elijah and Enoch did. And we think that maybe Elijah is one of the two prophets that will come back and perform miracles during the end time tribulation period. And he will certainly die during that time. We're told that the two prophets who come. So it may be only one person in the whole history of the world that may have escaped a physical death. But we are all destined for that. Now, what preceded the resurrection? Of course, the crucifixion of Jesus that resulted in his death. But prior to that, and I talked about it last Sunday, was the triumphal entry into Jerusalem that was prophesied by the prophet Daniel in chapter 9, verses 24, 25, and 26, that he would enter Jerusalem 173,880 days after the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. And they could count it to the day according to the scriptures. So when Jesus presented himself between the triumphal entry and his crucifixion, he had a whole week. So what did he do in that whole week? What would you do if you knew you had one week to live? And Jesus, being God, he had his own ideas, according to the will of the Father, that he went out and he did several things. It was mostly the teaching that he left there. First, he presented himself to the world on the triumphal entry. And of course, we remember that he wept over Jerusalem because he knew Jerusalem would reject him, although they were receiving him at that point and calling out things like Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, and praise be to God. Those types of things were taking place, but it immediately turned, as I discussed last week. Now, on Monday, he left some warnings. First, in Mark chapter 11, verses 12 through 14, he had talked about the fig tree, and he cursed it. And the fig tree was a symbol of the nation of Israel. It's like going up to the fig tree, he found no fruit that was on it, and he cursed the tree, and it immediately withered. Now, some say that it was at the end of the day or the next day it was completely withered but the tree completely withered because he had cursed it and he looked at Israel specifically Jerusalem he was going there to present himself to find fruit and there was no fruit and so Jerusalem and Israel fell under a curse at that point and we know that curse was fulfilled in Matthew chapter 24 and 25 it talks about Israel being sacked and how the temple would be torn down one stone upon another and that was fulfilled by the Roman Titus. He tore down everything in 70 AD. Then Jesus, he also, as I mentioned last week, he went and he cleared the temple. If you remember, you have the temple proper, you have the outer courts, and you have Solomon's colonnade that goes all the way around the temple. And it's these large columns. They could be 30 or 40 feet high, and it was covered in that area, maybe about three deep these columns would be. And it was a tremendous area where people would stop and rabbis would teach, and they also had the money changers there. And I told you last week how they were using that just to make money, and Jesus turned over the table 
tables of the money changers and he did not agree with what they were doing and of course we understand he called that a house of prayer and they had made it a den of robbers and Jesus rebuked them for it and just wreaked mayhem for them in that place and that was on Monday he also told some stories that brought condemnation for those Jews who would not believe you know at this particular point he's really driving it home who these Jews are that reject what the word has to say and rejected him as the Messiah there was the parable of the two sons in Matthew chapter 21 verses 28 through 32 and if you remember those two sons it's like this father went to the first son and he said I want you to get up and I want you to go out and work in the field and he goes no I'm not going to do it then he went to the second son and he says I want you to go out and work in the field he goes I'll do it and the first son changed his mind he repented and said okay I'm going to go out into the field and I'm going to work for my father but the second son who said that he would go out and work decided nah I'm going to stay back and play some video games or he's going to need to do something he's not going to be involved in working for the father and he compares the two a little bit later on in those verses and he talks about the tax collectors and the prostitutes are the ones that said no I will not follow God but then repented and decided that they would follow God and then you had the other son the second son who said that he would go and work but then they decided not to so they would have been the Jews that were expecting the Messiah but when the Messiah came they rejected him and said no and because of that they fell under a curse then he gave the parable of the vineyard and as he's talking he's talking to the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders and the Sadducees and the Pharisees all the leaders who were there and he described in this parable a man who planted a vineyard and as he planted that vineyard he decided to go on a journey and when he went on a journey he put the servants in charge and when it came time for harvest he sent back some servants to collect some of the bounty from the vineyard and when the servants got back there what happened those servants who were left behind ended up killing and persecuting the servants that the owner had sent well eventually the owner decided that he was going to send his own son. And the people connived, they, they were conniving, and in their heart they thought, well, if we kill the son, then we get the whole vineyard ourselves. It goes back to ourselves. He goes on to describe in that particular parable how this is the nation of Israel. And he says in the parable that the owner will come back and kill those people for what they had done. Because not only did they kill, did these people kill the servants, which were the prophets of old, but they killed the son, Jesus Christ, as well. And God tells them through these parables, these chief priests, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees and the elders, that they are going to be condemned. He's given them the, the strongest denunciation of their actions that he can possibly give them. And then he talks about the parable of the marriage feast. Same thing happens here. He prepares a great feast. This man prepares a great feast for this marriage supper and he sends out invitations and everybody who gets the invitation decides not to come. Again, he's pointing to the chief priests and the elders and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the leaders of the Jews, and they decided they weren't going to come. They decided they weren't going to receive the Messiah. 
And what happened as a result is he went back and judged them. And then he said, now go into all the world, grab everybody, look on the highways and byways and under the bushes and bring them, compel them to come to the marriage feast. And he's simply saying that the Jews who were in charge are going to be condemned in these three parables for what they have done in rejecting the Messiah. But yet everybody else, it is going to be open to everyone, everyone that even the leaders of the Jews would have condemned. And they're the ones that are being invited into the marriage supper of the land. Now, he also answered several questions during this week that he was around. He answered the question about paying tribute to Caesar. Now, there has been a movement in this country that I think it's the 16th Amendment. It was brought into being unconstitutionally, and we have to pay taxes now, and it's an egregious thing. And there's a whole group of people that say, I'm not going to pay my taxes. And they get on this high horse. I I knew a man, uh, he is deceased now, but this man ended up saying, no, I don't have to do that. And he quoted all kinds of laws and directives that had been passed down. Well, he ended up going to jail because he didn't pay his taxes. And when he got out, we met him years later, he said, well, now I am in compliance of paying these taxes. Well, what the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the chief priests tried to do was trip Jesus up. They wanted to create some animosity between Jesus and the people who had to pay taxes. Now, who doesn't want to get behind the not paying taxes? Everybody would just say, I would love not to pay taxes. After all, what month is it? It's like tax time. Who would like to say, I ain't paying no tax? That's a technical phrase there. I'm not paying any taxes. I'm not going to do it. We would love to not pay the taxes. And back then, what the Sadducees and the Pharisees did is they came to Jesus and they posed him a question. They said, what about taxes? Should we pay taxes? Because if they, if he said yes, pay taxes, that would turn the common person away from Jesus and it would have the end result of making the leaders of the Jews happy because the people would turn against Jesus. And then if he said, no, don't pay your taxes, then Rome would come and get Jesus. So they thought, we've got him now. And what did Jesus say? Why are you trying to trap me? I'm just trying to imagine what this is like. He's in Solomon's colonnade. He's sitting there, and the leaders of the Jews are probably on the outskirts, and everybody, the commoners, are sitting down in front of him, and he's teaching. He could be standing, probably sitting. And they're yelling this out to him or giving him this question, and all of these people are sitting in front of Jesus, and there's the Jews back there, and they say, should we pay taxes? And the people sitting down, I can just imagine what they did. Ooh, and they turn back to Jesus. What's he going to say? Oh, this is good. They're just waiting. He goes, hey, give me a coin. So he gets the coin. He goes, whose inscription is this? Whose picture is on here? And I said, Caesar's. He goes, well, give to Caesar's what's Caesar's and give to God what's God's. And they probably walked away. We got to think of something else to get this guy with. Well, that was one of the questions that he answered there. Another question was about the resurrection. Now, this is in Mark chapter 12 and also in Luke chapter 22. If you can recall the story, and and by the way, uh, the Mormons, the Latter-day Saints, they believe they're going to be married in heaven. That's why they have the temples. That's why the temple is here in San Diego. Maybe some of you went through that when they built it. 
And they gave you little booties to put on your uh, shoes so you'd walk through and not defile the carpet. Well, they ripped out all the carpet anyhow because you're not temple recommend. And they didn't let you go into the secret parts in there where they conduct the ceremonies because you're not worthy to walk in that particular area. And they believe that that's where you get sealed forever to be married forever on your own planet and have multiple wives and children. And it's just going to be a wonderful existence. That's what they believe. And, And so the... Jews here, they came up to Jesus and it was permissible in the Old Testament that if you married a woman and that woman treated you well, but you died, well, then you could marry the next brother and raise up children for the brother that had died, the next brother in line. And so they uh, proposed a scenario for him. They said, you know, say this happens seven times that The first man dies, and then the next brother marries. And then that brother dies, and then the next brother marries. All the way to seven. My question would have been, what is she feeding them? You know, I would have had a problem with that. But they tried to give him a scenario where this woman, and they asked him the question at the end. They said, okay, so if there's a resurrection, by the way, the Sadducees didn't believe in angels, and they didn't believe in the resurrection, that you're not going to be raised from the dead. And so they tried to trip him up on this. And Jesus, I could just imagine, he, he probably probably looked down a little bit. He turned back towards them and he said, You err because you know not the scriptures nor the power of God. There is neither marrying nor given in marriage in heaven. The idea that you're going to be married in heaven, it doesn't exist except... We're going to be married to Christ. We are the bride of Christ. And if you're married to somebody else in heaven and you're married to somebody on earth, that would be adultery. You can't do that. We are married to Christ. We are only his. He is a very jealous Messiah, very jealous God. He's not going to share us with somebody else. So again, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they probably walked away completely frustrated that they couldn't catch him in this trick question. Then there is another question. Like, which one of these is the greatest commandment in Mark chapter 12, verse 28? A Pharisee asked him that. He said, what's the greatest commandment? Was challenging Jesus. And of course, Jesus responded. And this is in Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 34. He responded and said, well, the Lord our God is one. He he pointed that out. So we have the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, but they are all God, they are one, but they are three in person. So he pointed out God is one. And he said, then what you're supposed to do, knowing this, that God is to be loved above all. That's the first and greatest commandment. And the second one is like it. You're to love your neighbor as yourself. And this Pharisee turned back to Jesus and Jesus commended him. It's one of the few times where the Pharisees get commended. And so this was really enlightening. He's going, wow, you, you are not far from the kingdom of God. You understand this. This is the good thing. But then there was this question of how could David's son be his Lord? Now, if you have children, do you bow down to your children and call them Lord? No. In, in our society, if you have children and grandchildren, they pay you respect or great-grandchildren. It was even more so the case back in the time of Jesus. And it continues through all generations. You would not have somebody who is the elder bowing down to somebody who is the younger. And Jesus tripped them up and said, why did David 
call the Messiah Lord since he was his son? And they couldn't answer. Duh, I, I don't know. I, they couldn't say anything. And because of that, they just said, forget it. We're not going to ask him any more questions whatsoever. We're ty- tired of being shown up by this guy who claims to be this prophet, and this rabbi, and maybe even the Messiah. We're just not going to do it anymore. And, and so he answered that. And when he posed the question, he answered it himself. And then there was this fearful denunciation of the scribes and Pharisees. Now, the scribes were the ones who wrote the law. And this is the last week. I mean, he's really given it to them this last week. And between Matthew chapter 22 and Matthew chapter 24, eight times he calls the teachers of the law and the Pharisees hypocrites. God could come and call me a hypocrite, and I would shrink and shrivel up. I, I, I don't think I could bear that. But he did this to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and the chief priests. And what happened to them? They just hardened their hearts. Now, what did he say that they were hypocrites on? Paying to taxes, paying taxes to Caesar. He says, why are you trying to trap me? And then preventing people from entering the kingdom of God. And each one of these, he says, woe to you. Woe is, man, you are going to suffer because of this. And then he, uh, they, he said that they traveled to make converts, and those converts become more wicked even than the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He condemned them, and he said, you are blind guides is who you are. And then this idea that they would tithe on their spices, and specifically in the scripture it talks about mint, dill, and cumin. And he said, but you neglect justice, mercy, and faithfulness. He said, you should have continued with the former, but not neglected the latter. And they were not practicing justice, mercy, and faithfulness. But they'd be so meticulous about giving of their tithe, which means it's a heart problem. It wasn't the outward uh, faithfulness that they were clinging to that they thought would bring them righteousness. And then the fifth one was... He accused them of cleaning the outside but on the in, of their bodies, and, but on the inside was greed and indulgence. In other words, they looked righteous on the outside. They would pray at the street corners. They would raise their hands. They would fast. They would have their cheeks just get sunken in because they wouldn't eat. They'd put on sackcloth and ashes. They would keep the law meticulously. They would do the ceremonial washings, and everybody would look at them and say, Oh, they're so holy. They're so righteous. And Jesus says, no, on the inside is hypocrisy and wickedness. So again, he's attacking the inside. And during this week, he also said, just like your forefathers that killed the prophets, you are just as guilty as they are. And it just right into their face. He said, woe to you. And also not being diligent, wise servants, watching for the coming of the Messiah and how they would beat and persecute others that came to bear testimony of God and what God's will was. So on all these eight things, he says, woe to you. And he says, you are hypocrites because you live like this. I mean, just in the strongest terms possible, he ended up condemning them. And the last one was the poor widow's gift. Remember, she gave two copper coins, and it's all she had. 
And Jesus was watching where the, the people would come by and they'd drop their offering in there. And of course, the wealthy would also come and they'd drop some of what they had. And Jesus condemned those who were rich because they gave out of their wealth. But this woman, she gave everything that she had. And so Jesus, he doesn't let up. He just keeps on going. Of course, we know that this led to his crucifixion. And then he took the time for talking about what's going to happen at the end, the Olivet Discourse. The Olivet Discourse is listed in Matthew 24 and 25, Mark 13, Luke 21. And it talks about what is in our future as well. Some of it dealt with the future of Israel at that time, the condemnation of the people and the tearing down of the temple. That was certainly the case. But he gave the information to his disciples at this particular time to let them know what was in their future as well as ours. That's why there's so much time spent on eschatology. And I've been listening to several messages this week and in the previous weeks, and it seems like the majority of churches do not talk about eschatology or things that happened in the end times. Now, I try to do that on a regular basis to keep us abreast of what is going on. Uh, I'm going to give you a short example of that. Uh, Remember, I've been talking about crypto and how our money that we have, the paper money and the coins, is going to go away. It's going to become obsolete. Uh, I've given you statistics in the past that 70% of the people that do financial transactions, uh, like with cash or credit card, they do it with a credit card or a debit card. They're no longer using cash. We are already going in that direction. Now, why is this important? Uh, Why switching over to a digital system is that important? Because we are told that in the end times in Revelation chapter 13 that we will not be able to buy or sell unless we have a mark. In other words, they'll be able to prohibit us from buying or selling. How can they do that? They can easily do that with a digital cash system. They can't do that if you have paper cash. But they can do that. They can regulate everything that you would spend or that you would buy based on your social credit score. That's coming. Now that's part, and we're looking, this is a foreshadowing of things that lie ahead. This is what tells us that this is in our future. Now Jesus started talking about these things and what was going to take place, and he warned them of what was to come and how there are going to be false prophets, how there's going to be this abomination of desolation in Matthew chapter 24, verse 15. This is where the person, as we know him as the Antichrist, will stand in the temple and declare himself to be God and be worshipped as God. And then there's this period of time of the Great Tribulation. He talked about this in that last week as well. And the coming of the Son of Man, how he will come back. And he says, you need to keep watch. And he gave seven parables during this time about the fig tree. And of course, I just gave you that information and how the time will be like in the times of Noah violence will be in the land. Have you guys been noticing that there is an increase in violence in our country? There's always been violence, but it's kind of getting out of control. Uh, Like this one swimmer. Remember the uh, swimmer who got second place behind Leah Thomas, who was a man that swam? Well, she went and spoke, I think it's the University of San Francisco, and she was accosted. She was punched by a trans man he a man that's like a woman actually punched him and we know that the murder that just took place of the trans woman who identified as a man that killed 
three adult men and, or excuse me, three adults and three children. And they were Christians, but they're not talking about that. And it was a school that she previously went to. And if you look at the news, and it depends on which news you read, there is an increase in violence with the trans community. They even had a trans day of violence a trans day of protesting and they are becoming violent and this is becoming common throughout the land not only here but in the rest of the world as well if you look in Israel right now they're having some Hamas devotees they're going into the Dome of the Rock and they're holding it down and keeping people inside and they're throwing in uh, bottle rockets and things like that and firecrackers and don't worry when we get there it's no problem it, it, but it, it, uh, that's taking place right now and, and this will blow over because it's Ramadan and they're trying to get the country and the world to see that the Palestinians have been treated unjustly and they go through cycles like this. It would be kind of exciting to be there and, and see what's going on and we'd be at a safe distance but these things are localized it's kind of like here in the United States. If there's something that takes place, well, it takes place in this little part right there. And it, it normally doesn't take place where you are. And, and so that's taking place in Israel. You look at France, and France is just blowing up over there. And you see the wars that are going on in Syria and in Ukraine and Russia and China. You see all that taking place. And God talked about that. Wars, rumors of wars, and there will be nothing but violence in the land all the time. And everybody will be doing what is right in their own eyes. And he gives some descriptions. He says, two men will be in the field, one and two women will be grinding. And one will be taken and one will be left. And some people think that that's the rapture. That's not. That's the end of the tribulation period where the unrighteous are taken into judgment. It's like the weeds. They're bound up first and they're thrown into the fire. He talked about that. He also said that the master of the house and the thief, if the master would have known when the thief was coming, he would have prepared for that. It's going to be something that is going to take people by surprise. And then the faithful and the evil servants that they were not watching for the masters. They just took the, the master to come back. They just took their leisure. They were doing what they wanted to. And then the ten virgins, five who had oil in their lamps and five who did not have enough oil to keep their lamps lit. And they missed the time that the bridegroom was coming. And then the talents. Each one of us has been given a talent, so to speak. And what I mean by that is not a talent like a gift. I mean it's like a coin or a mina. Uh, some people have been given one coin. Some people have been given five coins. Some people have been given ten coins. And whatever monetary figure that was in the parable that was given, they were supposed to invest that and get a return. The one who had ten coins or ten minas, it was returned with ten to give back to the master when he returned. The one who had five invested it and gave back five. And the one who had one coin or one mina, he didn't invest it. He just buried it because he knew that the master was very shrewd and gained things from places that he did not even work so hard for. And God calls him in this parable a wicked servant. And how, do you, how does that relate to us? You have been given a gift. You have been given a coin. Maybe just one coin or five coins or ten coins. Billy Graham, I think, had ten coins. I think he was given a lot and had a lot of responsibility. Greg Laurie, uh, Harvest Christian Fellowship, uh, Jesus Revolution. I think he's been given 10 coins. I don't have 10 coins. I, I might have two. 
You know, instead of just one, maybe I have two. And I'm supposed to invest that. I'm supposed to go, okay, the Lord wants a return on his investment in me, so I better put it to work. And what does he want from me? Go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's what I'm called to do. Each one of you has a particular gift. You've been given something. And God wants a return from you as well. And I think as we walk the Christian walk, as we're faithful, we will automatically get a return on that. We don't have to do anything. It's kind of like if you put money in the bank. Do you go down there every day and say, put more money in the bank? Come on, you got to give me some more interest on that. No, you just sit back. And you look on the computer, oh, look, it gained a little interest. That's because it's in the bank. It's, it's doing what it's supposed to do. So it's kind of for the people then, but it's also for us as well. Then he talks about the final judgment, the sheep and the goats. Now, which one are you? Are you a sheep or are you a goat? And there's a difference. The sheep are the ones who are saved. The goats are not saved. But do you know goats and sheep hang out with each other? They, they just kind of, and the other one, bah, you know, they, they, they gather together and they walk around and you'll see them hanging out with each other. And God talks about that, like in the church, you have the wheat and the tares. And when that first germinates, you cannot tell the difference between wheat and tares but when they head and you have the seeds at the top and a common weed back then that looked like wheat was called darnel and you could tell by the seed head that the seed head was not wheat and jesus said let both grow together and at the harvest then separate them so that means in any particular church church body there's going to be people who were not saved that are in the body and those people who are saved, and they dwell together. This is also in the kingdom parables where this mustard seed is the smallest of all the seeds, and it grows up and creates the biggest shrub in the garden, and then it says the birds come and land in its branches. And the birds are usually depicted as something evil or something from the enemy. So inside the church, we're going to have both. We just want to make sure no one in here is a bird or some darnel. We want to make sure that you are wheat and that God is getting a return on his investment in you. So then it comes to either Tuesday or Wednesday and this conspiracy of the Jews to come against Jesus is brought to fruition. Jesus is anointed at Bethany and that's where he has the alabaster box broken on his head and Mary wipes his feet and with her tears she just really blesses him and it's for his burial that is imminent. And then Judas bargains with the priest to betray Jesus. So all of this happens probably on Wednesday. Now I'm just going to give you a parenthetical thought here. I don't know if you've heard these studies, but there is the question on which day was Jesus crucified? Was he crucified on Friday? Was he crucified on Thursday? Or was he crucified on Wednesday? And there are websites devoted to this. I, I just read one we, recently that said there are 22 reasons why Jesus couldn't be crucified on Wednesday. And, uh, by the time you get to the end, you have 22 reasons more than you'd ever want to know why Jesus wasn't crucified on Wednesday. 
But if you have three full days and you base it on the double Sabbath that is there, the day of preparation, you could see where some people would say Wednesday and some would say Thursday and some would say Friday. And is it a full day because it says evening and morning and you have to go through that? It, let me tell you, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because Jesus was crucified. And he did raise from the dead. And we can get so sidetracked on some of those issues. And it's fun to look up. If, if you want to do this, you can go home and look up on YouTube. Say and type in, Jesus was crucified on Wednesday. And you'll get videos coming up. And one guy will say, and this is the problem. And he goes and explains everything. And he goes, but this is a problem too if it's Thursday. And this is the problem if it's Friday. It doesn't matter. And I'm not going to go down that road. You can do your own study on that. And so then we have the Holy Thursday where Jesus washes the feet of the disciples. And that's casting aside, well, which day was he crucified on? It's just by tradition. This is when Jesus washed the feet of the disciples. And they had the Jewish Seder. And this was during the Jewish Seder. Now, if you go to a Jewish Seder, this is where they celebrate the Passover meal. They have this booklet, and this booklet is called the Haggadah. And the Haggadah is a telling. And it just tells what the trek of the Israelites were, how they came out of slavery. And there are several things that they have during this meal. Who in here has not been to a Jewish Seder? Just raise your hand. I want to get an idea. Okay, maybe about half of you. And it's good sometime in your life to go to one. And I prefer to go to one that is a messianic fellowship that they explain everything that's going on because all the elements that are served really point to Jesus Christ. Like, for instance, the things that are served there. It's a meal and they have a book and they go through the book. And during that time in the book, there are four times where they drink a couple of wine, a, a cup of wine. And that cup of wine, usually it's about a cheek full of wine that they're supposed to drink. And if you have a goblet like this, that's not going to end up going well by the end of the Seder. And so they, they have just these little cups, not too big, not too small, about a cheek full. And they have these elements in front of them. And as they go through the Haggadah, as they go through the text there, it explains what everything is. Like there's the maror, it's bitter earth. Herbs, and it symbolizes the bitterness that the Hebrews, when they were enslaved in Egypt, and what they use, you guys like horseradish? Take some horseradish, put it in a leaf of romaine lettuce, stick it in your mouth and see what happens to your eyes. You're just going to start tearing up everywhere. That horseradish is so pungent and, it, and it's good on certain meats, you know, like prime rib. But if you just take a spoonful of that stuff, stick it in your mouth, you go, whoa, you get something to drink and just kind of calm things down. Well, that was supposed to remind them of the tears that they shed and the hardship that they went through, the bitterness that they experienced while being enslaved in Egypt. And then there's the charset. It's a sweet mixture of either apples and pears and nuts. It's usually mixed with some red wine. They mix all that together. It's kind of sweet and kind of tasty, but that's supposed to remind them of the mortar that went between the bricks that they would make and their hardships that they experienced. Then there was the carpus, the vegetable like parsley and they dip it in salt water because tears are salty and that's what they would remember and they'd put it into their mouth they'd eat that little piece of parsley that was there and then there was the shank bone or the zora and that was to symbolize the lamb that was sacrificed now today if you go to a jewish seder they may offer lamb or chicken 
you get chicken. Now, I don't know that chicken was prescribed in the Old Testament, but they've modified it a little bit. You can have a nice, tasty piece of chicken during the meal instead of a roasted lamb. Then there's the betza, the roasted egg, and it symbolizes life and temple sacrifice. And also the matzah, which is unleavened bread. And now, when this is going on through different sections, you'll take a cup. And you'll, the person will say a blessing over the cup and you take the cup to the first cup. It's where God is reminding the people that I will bring you out from the yoke of slavery from the Egyptians, which means sanctification. So that first cup is the cup of sanctification. The second cup that they have is deliverance, that he freed them from slavery. And by the way, our, quote, Easter resurrection day coincides with the Passover I'm going to give you another parenthetical thought here. And you might ask yourself, well, why doesn't Passover and Resurrection Day fall on the same time? It was because of the anti-Semitism of the Catholic Church. They said, we never want our Resurrection Day to fall on the same day as Passover because of the Jews. And they were very anti-Semitic. The historic Catholic Church has been very anti-Semitic. If you want to read Dave Hunt's book, The Woman Who Rides the Beast, it was written, I think, back in the 70s. He talks about how actually the Catholic Church was involved in moving some of Hitler's men down to Argentina and South America. Now, is that to condemn the people who are Catholics? No, it's not. It was the leadership in the Catholic Church that did that. And Dave Hunt's book, he has a thorough investigation of that. You, you can see everything that happens uh, with that and I think it is um, uh, what's his name the guy the Israel guy that does the teaching all the time Amir Amir Safari if you listen to him he does a teaching on that as well uh, anyhow I digress so the first cup is cup of sanctification the second cup is a cup of deliverance the third cup is the cup of redemption and remember this happens during the Passover Seder which coincides with our resurrection day that we celebrate. And then the fourth cup is the cup of praise and hope. And that's the cup Jesus said, I will not drink this cup until I do it again afresh in the kingdom. Now, one other thing about this, uh, maybe you're familiar with this. It's called the afikomen. You want to put a picture of that up, Daryl, please? Now, this particular pouch is what is known as the afikomen in this pouch, there are three compartments, if you can see them in there. And in the middle compartment, now all three of these compartments contain bread or the cracker or the matzah is what we would call it. It has no yeast. It's just like a cracker, a big wafer. And you put it in the pouch and there's three sections in the pouch. And what they have to do at the beginning of the Jewish Seder is they pull out the middle one. They break it in two put half of it back in and they take the other piece, fold it in a napkin and hide it in the house. And at the end, what they do is they send the children to go find it. And they go find the piece of bread. They bring it back to the head of the Jewish Seder, the one who's doing everything there. And that person gives a reward for the person who brings back the bread, the bread of life. Jesus was broken for us. And part of it was hidden and, and part of it was 
taken away in the house, the kids go find it and they get rewarded. If you find Jesus who is the bread of life, you get rewarded. Now what they will do is they will, if there's several kids, they will give them like a piece of chocolate, all of them, because they all went looking for the matzah, the bread of life. And if there's only one, they may get a, another present. Could you imagine if there's one that always gets and finds the bread and the younger ones don't find it and it, it turns not into a celebration but a little child is crying because they didn't get something, that type of thing. So that's why they spread the chocolate or, or the little gift for everyone over all of them. And of course, this symbolizes Jesus' body, the center afikomen, his body which was broken. He is the bread of life. He's hidden for a little while and revealed at the end. And they also keep a seat open for Elijah the prophet because Elijah the prophet is supposed to precede the coming of the Messiah when Jesus came the first time John the Baptist could have fulfilled that but certainly when he comes the second time Elijah will most certainly come scripture says and he's going to show up and so that's what they do at the Seder so everything points to the coming of the Messiah and it's a great Bible study to go through in Matthew chapter 26 verse 27 through 30 This is where Jesus says he won't take the fourth cup. He says, then he took the cup, gave thanks and offered it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now and until the day when I drink it anew with you in my father's kingdom. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Now with this, the... When they sing, they sing one of the Hillel Psalms. The Hillel Psalms are Psalms 113 to 118. Now, our closing song, we're going to do a communion song, but our closing song, I'm trying to think which one to do. Uh, Because we have one by Charles Wesley. Uh, talks about Jesus Christ is risen today. Hallelujah. You, You know that one from Charles Wesley? But... Whenever they left the Seder, they sang one of the Psalms. And we have, now, the songs that I grew up on in my Christian experience were all scripture songs. And there is Psalm 118, uh, the Lord is good, the Lord endures forever for he is good. And we might sing that song. And I I have to think, well, which one do we really want to sing? One of the Hillel Psalms? Or do we want to say that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead? And I'll let you know as soon as we get up there which, which one we're going to pick. But, but that's what they did. They sang praises at the end of the Seder even though he was going to the cross because he knew what it represented for everyone. So we're going to apply this. Why do we remember this day? Because Jesus could not be held down under judgment of death because he had no sin and that's why he was raised back to life. He condemned those Jews who refused to believe. He told us of what was to come in the future and we will see signs of that all around us. The Jews had the Passover that pointed directly to God and what he did in the past in saving his people and what he will do in the future to save all of us who ask him to do so. Jesus invites us to be partakers with him in this resurrection. So if you have a question, are you Darnell? Are you the birds in the branches? You don't know if you're truly saved? I'm one who has questioned my salvation before. Believe it or not, I have. Am I really saved? You know, I've committed a sin here and I committed a sin there. Why can't I get this right? I remember in my early Christian experience, before I met my wonderful wife, I, I said to myself and to God, 
I, I was in my room. I remember exactly where I was. And I forget what sin I had committed. And I turned to God and I said, why can't I get this right? I was trying to, I need to walk a sanctified life. Why can't I get this right? And I just heard this instant, still small voice. You won't. And I thought, what? What? I'm not going to get this right. And then I really started to comprehend what the grace of God was. How I'm not going to get it right. I am going to sin, but I still trust in God. And God says, I know that's why you need to be saved. And he's going to give us a new body as a result of that. Now, if you're not sure, am I saved or not? This is what you do. When we're going through communion and we're singing a song, You just turn to Jesus and you say, Jesus, you know, save me. I believe in you. However you want to say it. It, It's as simple as that. You just say, Jesus, please save me from my sins. And he will. He promises to do so. And he will never lose you. So that's what you do in order to go to heaven. People like the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the chief priests, the teachers of the law... They didn't do that. They refused to do that. Said, no, I'm a good person. I was actually listening to a podcast the other day of two people who claimed to be believers and the question was asked of them, and they're two brothers, twins, the question was asked of them, how do you get to heaven? And his response, one of them responded, said, if you just be a good moral person, that's not it. You're not going to get to heaven. It's simply by believing in Jesus Christ that he's able to save you from your sin. So this is the end of the matter. We know that those who accept Jesus Christ are called overcomers. This is what an overcomer gets. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat of the tree of life. To him who overcomes, who will not be hurt by the second death. To him who overcomes, I will give of the hinted manna which I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. Also, he says, I will give authority over the nations. He says, he who overcomes will be like them, dressed in white. I will never blot out his name from the book of life, and I will acknowledge him before my father and his angels. And him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. And to him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne and he who overcomes will inherit all this and I will be his God and he will be my son that's the promise for those who say Jesus save me my encouragement to you on this resurrection day is if you haven't said Jesus save me that you pray that prayer sincerely and he promises to do so do not be like the Jews that say no I refuse because so many blessings lie ahead. Now, what we're going to do at this point is we're going to receive communion. The lights are going to go down in the middle. And as we begin to play the song, Patty's going to come up and we're going to sing a song. And as we're singing that song, if you need to pray and ask for forgiveness or ask to be saved, do that at that time. And then as our habit is, Uh, Dennis will come up and he'll separate the elements here and you can come up, come up the center aisle, you know, give it a minute or two, but come up the center aisle and file back around the outside and walk into the aisles and sit back down and hold the elements until we can participate in receiving it together. So Patty, if you come on up.